Good morning, everyone. Welcome and good evening to the ladies listening tonight. My name is Pamela Beal, for those of you who don't know me. I found it a bit intimidating to have to follow Linda Friend, but not surprisingly, she did a wonderful presentation on 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So today I'm going to be presenting what the Lord has shown me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I have some defined some terms that are um, in my little lesson and um, they're on the board behind you if you want to refer to them. So we'll um, start with prayer. Uh, Eden, did you want to pray? Yeah, of Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful crisp fall morning. God, it's sunny out, and we are just appreciating the sunshine as it reminds us that every morning your mercies remain. Mm -hmm. We are praying over Pam this morning as she brings your word to us. Uh, we pray that as it's touched her, you would just leave it to touch our lives, that we would hear what she's trying to say that we would find a way to um, share it with others when we leave here. And we just pray that you would bless everyone in this room and, and those that aren't with us this morning, um, especially as, you know, we just go through the night together. God, we're grateful that we're here. We're grateful that Pam is ready to lead us. And we just pray that you would season her words with your salt. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Eden. So <clears throat> Paul ends chapter four of second Corinthians by encouraging us that this life is not all there is. There is life after death. We're to look past what is temporary, what is per perishing and pursue God, Christ, the Holy Spirit and the souls of men. In chapter five, one to 11, he discusses our eternal glorious destiny. Paul begins chapter five boldly saying, for we know. Christians can know because God has given us his word, his very great and precious promises. We are not left to guess or think or hope. It's not high in the sky. What do we know? In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 4, it says, For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Here, Paul is comparing our physical bodies with a tent. The people of that day could relate as many were nomadic tent dwellers. The Jewish Christians among the Corinthians knew of the patriarchs and their ancestors who dwelled in tents as they looked forward to the promised land. The Jewish tabernacle, a temporary structure, a fancy tent, manifested God's presence among the people as they wandered in the wilderness. In addition, Paul, as a tent maker, knew much about tent characteristics. Paul's point here is that like a temporary tent, Men's earthly existence is fragile, unsecure, lowly, and temporary. Contrast that with a building from God, a metaphor for the believer's resurrected, glorified body, which implies solidity, security, certainty, and permanence. Just as the Israelites replaced the tabernacle with a temple, so we believers ought to long to exchange our earthly bodies for our glorified ones body not of this earthly creation 
just think no more trips to the gym. And I hope no more wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> but a new body, one that will forever express our transformed nature, bodies that will be perfect for eternal life, the creation of God alone, not made with human hands. Paul had a passionate longing to be free from his earthly body, from his sins, frustrations, and weaknesses. Can you relate? So why is it so that so many of us are not earnestly desiring heaven? It is because we, is it because we are so comfortable here on earth? Remember, the church at Corinth was in the heart of Greek culture, so many of the Greek converts had difficulty with the concepts of the bodily resurrection. They believed the afterlife was only for the soul, but the Bible teaches that the body and soul are not permanently separated. Paul is saying in verses three and four, in eternity, we will not be unclothed bodiless spirits but we will have a real, eternal, resurrected body, just as Jesus received. Philippians 3, 20 to 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, he who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee is a pledge or a down payment of something to come. The spirit is the believer's down payment or pledge of his eternal inheritance given by God. Second Corinthians 1.22 says, and who has also put his seal on us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A seal is a sign of ownership and protection. God is preparing us right now for our eternal destiny. Think of the times in your life that you've been touched by the Holy Spirit, how he convicts you of sin, encourages you, and teaches you. Now, continuing on to verse six and seven, Paul writes, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, but not by sight. Paul is not saying here that we have absolutely no contact with the Lord on this earth. It's just that we are away from the fullness of his presence. We have prayer. We have the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship through the word. He's simply expressing a homesickness, a strong yearning to be at home with his Lord. One of the greatest principles of life is walking by faith and not by sight. For now, we Christians have hope for that which is not seen. Our faith comes by believing what scripture tells us. I have some examples here in Romans 5, chapter 15, verses 4 and 13. It says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In verse 9, Paul says that our aim is to please God. The word aim in Greek means to love what is honorable. Paul's highest goal and should be 
for every believer is to please his Lord. The term to please is the same one used in Titus 2.9 to describe slaves who are passionate to please their masters. In verse 10, Paul points out that Christians have a judgment to face. The judgment here is not the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 at the, set, at the end times. This describes a judgment of the works of believers. What we do now has eternal consequences. According to Romans 14, 10 to 12, we must all give an account for what we've done on earth, our deeds, good or evil, and the motives of our hearts. There is no condemnation at this judgment, but a recognition of responsibility and accountability. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment seat is translated from the Greek word thema, which was an elevated platform in which a judge sat. The Corinthians would have understood this as they had a platform where both the athletic rewards and the legal justice were dispersed. Actually, I saw this in Corinth a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> the ruins of it. And I have a picture, maybe show you later. The judgment seat refers metaphorically to a place where the Lord will sit to evaluate believers' lives for the purpose of eternal rewards. These rewards will be cast at Jesus' feet. While there will be rewards, there will also be loss, but not a forfeiting of salvation, forfeiting of salvation. It is possible to have a saved soul in a wasted life. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15 says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping the flames. Paul suffered much for the Lord, perhaps knowing that there are eternal rewards waiting him. This helped him to persevere through beatings, shipwrecks, criticisms, and imprisonments. May this help us also as we go through these trials on earth. It would be wise to ask ourselves, how mindful am I of the fact that my work will be judged by the Lord? This should be an encouragement to us and not a fear. When we commit our ways to the Lord, do all to his glory, serve diligently with a right heart attitude, and just do what God puts in front of us. We don't need to be the next Billy Graham or Susan Schroeder. <laughs> She's going to kill me. Moms and grandmoms, when changing that dirty diaper, we can glorify God. We make our babies feel better. They look in our smiling faces and you're developing trust in them. As you talk to them while changing them, they're learning language and body parts. As you blow on their bellies and giggle together, you're bonding with them. This glorifies our Father in heaven. This mm -hmm. simple task. Not so simple as it looks. 
If you want to know more about this judgment, this past April and May, Pastor Tim did a five-part series entitled The Crowned. The New Testament talks about five crowns given to faithful followers. They are the imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory. These are powerful motivators to live faithfully for God's glory. And hopefully I've whet your appetite to go back and listen to those sermons. Verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we pursue others. The Greek word for pursue is to convince, to prevail upon, or to win over. Swindoll says in his commentary, we have a responsibility to share the truth with others. Instead of accepting the world's I'm okay, you're okay philosophy, the reality of eternity spent in heaven or hell should motivate us to fear the Lord and try to persuade others. The message is, come to Jesus and be delivered from the wrath of God, which without Jesus, we all deserve, right? Right now, we have the opportunity to be courageous and bold, to share the truth of the gospel with others. Once in heaven, there's no need, and the opportunity is gone. going to share with you now one of the greatest regrets of my life quite a few years ago maybe like 20 years ago um, I was working in the emergency department at Pocono Hospital <clears throat> they were expanding the ED and construction was in progress as I left work I ran into an old high school friend that I hadn't seen him in years um, he was a construction manager so he was there on the job site we did some catching up but sadly, I never took the opportunity to talk about the Lord to him. I had no idea where he stood with the Lord. A few weeks later, I heard that he had suddenly died of a heart attack. So I pray that I will never miss an opportunity like that again to share the gospel. Mm -hmm. Continuing on in verses 12 to 21, Paul defends and describes his ministry. Remember, Corinth was a glorious, materialistic city. There, are many, there were many elite, wealthy Christians in the church and also false teachers. They looked down on Paul because he was poor, homeless, and often imprisoned. Yet he had a heart full of love for them. Without Paul, there may not have been a church in Corinth. Paul's focus was on his heart condition before the Lord. It was not on outward appearance as the Corinthian Christians valued. First Samuel 16, seven, you're probably all familiar with, says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We must continually ask ourselves, in what are we glorifying? Is it in outward appearances or is it the inward heart condition? In verse 13, Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, which means he knew that the people thought he was crazy. <laughs> we can relate to Paul in today's culture, can't we? We Christians are regarded by the mainstream in the same way. According to secular standards, we are too conservative, too dogmatic, too intolerant. According, um, A.W. Tozer states the quote from him, 
A real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. So, my friends, we appear very strange to the unbeliever. Never fear, the multitudes said that Jesus lost his senses and was possessed. That's in Mark 3, 21 and 22. In John 10, 20, the Pharisees said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? So rejoice, this persecution is the mark of a strong Christian who will not be ashamed the mercy seat. The love Paul talks about in verses 14 to 16, the world doesn't know. They are spiritually, they are dead spiritually. They need Jesus to give them new life. The worldview is we are all good people. The Christian view is that people are bad apart from divine grace. Mm -hmm. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God longs to have our hearts filled with his love so that he can use us as channels for his love to flow out to others. May Christ's love compel us to action. Like Paul, we no longer live to please ourselves, but we spend our lives pleasing Christ. Verse 17 reminds us that the moment we trust Jesus for salvation, God performs a spiritual transplant, a transformation giving a new heart that begins to have the mind of Christ, the joy of salvation and obedience. We Christians are brand new people on the inside. The Holy Spirit gives us new life. We are not the same anymore. We are not reformed, re-educated, or rehabilitated. We are new creations. We have a new way of looking at all people and all of creation. The believer lives with a new motivation one that is in accordance with the purpose and will of God. It is not like a New Year's re resolution that's usually gone by January 31st. In verses 18 and 19, Paul talks about reconciliation. The direct Greek translation of reconciliation is to change completely. The definition is the restoration of friendly relations. We have fellowship and peace with God where once there was enmity. An example of this is when Peter was reconciled to Jesus after not denying him three times. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul says, God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. We have the privilege of being entrusted with this responsibility of making God's appeal to unbelievers to be reconciled to him. 
Our sin was poured into Christ at the cross. His righteousness is poured into us at conversion. God then brings us back to himself. We are no longer God's enemies, strangers, or foreigners. We are his kids, his ambassadors. An ambassador historically represented a king from one country to another. Paul describes his and all believers' roles as ambassadors representing our king in heaven. We take the message of the gospel to a world who needs to be reconciled to God, their rightful king. We represent our homeland. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are in this world, but not of it. Though life is short, it is eternally significant. We must not let the incessant pressures and distractions of the world lure us away from those things that are most important. So I'll leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Okay, let's pray. Oh Lord, we just praise you and thank you for giving us your precious word. May the richness and depth of it penetrate our hearts that we may know you and your ways better and better. Lord, may we go forth as ambassadors for you, our King, spreading the gospel of reconciliation, being lights shining in our dark world. Our hearts rest on you, Lord, and your word to restore, support, and strengthen us. Thank you that you do equip us with all that we need for doing your will. Thank you, Father. We desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when we stand before you. We stand before you in glory. Thank you, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.